Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Abby Davison. Abby is a social innovation leader and career development expert. Most recently, she spent nine years at global retailer Gap Incorporated, where she served as president of the Gap Foundation and a senior leader on the ESG team. Abby also co-founded the company's employee resource group for working parents, which has been featured as a best practice for how employers can support dual career couples. Abby's expertise in career development comes from serving as an alumni career coach at Stanford's Graduate School of Business and from forging her own non-traditional career path across the public, private and non-profit sectors. Abby holds a BA from Yale University and an MBA and MA in education from Stanford University. She lives with her husband and their two sons in San Francisco. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about money and love. The book Abby co-authored about how to make life's biggest decisions. We talk about how relationships impact our money decisions and how to communicate and negotiate effectively. Abby takes us through the 5C decision-making framework and applies this to three life events. The first is choosing a mate or choosing whether to marry. The second is combining family and career. And the third is deciding whether to break up or indeed to divorce your partner. We also talk about how gender norms play into these decisions. And to finish up, we talk about how to create that win-win situation for yourself and for your loved one. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. I hope you enjoy this podcast interview. So Abby, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on today. I'm so delighted to be here. Now, before we start talking about your new book, I would love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to where you are today and why write a book about money and love. Well, my career path has not been linear. Uh, It has definitely been a spider web career. I've worked in all of the sectors, public, private, and nonprofit. I love looking at issues from different vantage points. And it's always been true ever since I had a a multidisciplinary major in undergraduate studies. But when I was in my early and mid-20s, like so many, I really struggled with how to make big life decisions. Um, It just felt like Nobody had told me how to think about, do I move to a new city just because I want to live there, even if I don't have a job there, or if I'm dating someone and things are going well, you know, how do we take our relationship to the next level? What does that even mean? And I've made those decisions. I certainly found my way through them somehow, but I couldn't shake the feeling that there just wasn't an approach that made sense. And so it was so helpful to me. It was a light bulb moment for me when I found my way to Stanford Business School and studied with Myra Strober, a professor there who 
is my co-author on the book called Money and Love and took a class that she taught there. And we'll get into it, but it really crystallized for me that the conventional wisdom that we should make financial or career decisions with our heads, really analyze them, and then relationship decisions with our hearts, think about how you feel, and don't let financial elements cloud your relationship decisions is just such a bad approach. (laughs) It's really, I think, Mm -hmm. one of the reasons Mm -hmm. that so many people struggle, including myself. And what Myra spoke about in her class was so powerful was that all big life decisions have an element of money that should be analyzed and an element of heart that you should listen to in a more intuitive way. And if you only look at one side of the picture, you're ignoring a tremendously important part of the picture. And so looking at decisions in a more holistic way ensures that you are better able to make decisions that you won't regret and feel more confident about the approach and the process. And we joined forces. I can share more of the the backstory of how we got there, but our goal is really to take this information to more people so that more people can have lives filled with meaning and purpose and make better life decisions. That's wonderful. If I think back to all the books out there on money and investing, very few, if any, call out relationships as an important part to thinking about money. It's almost like there's a sort of denial or a dismissal of that very human fundamental aspect to our life, which is relationships, love, partnerships, etc. So it really struck me how this book will seem so obvious and a relief for women because this is how we see the world really but also quite liberating for men who might think about the world in a, in a similar way and, and you've created a framework and you've captured all of this experience this knowledge this wisdom into this book which is wonderful thank you and you're right we don't exist in a vacuum and You know, in fact, when I took Myra's class, when I studied with her, I was in a relationship. I had started dating someone at the beginning of graduate school, and we were nearing the end of our studies and had to make decisions about whether we were going to look for jobs in the same city, limit our search so that we would end up in the same city, whether we would move in together if we did indeed end up in the same city. And Myra's class forced us to have really difficult, uncomfortable conversations that we did not feel ready for. Certainly, I hadn't had those conversations in previous relationships, but she really gave us the push to think about all of the different parts of our identities, right? The the ambitious, career-driven part of our identity, as well as the part of our identity that wanted a romantic relationship, wanted to one day build a family. And it really changed our lives having access to this information at that critical moment in time. And we did end up finding our way to the same city. We did get married. That was over 13 years ago. And we returned to Myra's class as guest speakers for a decade, had two children at the time, continued to advance our careers, made lots of different life decisions along the way. And I really credit the approach that we learned in the class and that is in the book to 
helping us build a strong foundation that has weathered so many different changes and evolution really of our lives. I wonder whether you can share a life event decision which might not have gone to plan and what did you learn from that? I think it'd be really useful to highlight where making an important life decision, maybe without this framework, knowing how to think about it carefully can lead to making maybe not the the most optimal decision. Yes, I have plenty of examples of those. Um, I, I think we all do. But certainly from my life before I took the class, because as you said, it's not rocket science. Once you read it and you learn the framework, and I know we'll talk more about it, you realize, oh, okay, this isn't something that's never dawned on me. But especially when you're younger, you know, and I did have relationships before I met my husband, and I'll share one. And it, it's interesting. It's actually the first time I ever visited London was in college. And I had a boyfriend at the time, and we hadn't been dating for that long, but we thought, oh, it would be fun to travel together. And this was the first time I'd been out of the United States without my parents. And we bought tickets to go to London over um, a holiday break. And because relationships in college are what they are, we ended up breaking up before the date that we were scheduled to leave. Uh, But because, of course, we were college students, we didn't have a lot of money. We bought non-refundable tickets, like the cheapest tickets you could get. And so we ended up going on that trip together. And it was awkward, to say the least. I mean, we were sitting next to each other on a plane, we were sharing a hotel room, it just it was, and it was a short trip, right. And I still enjoyed my time there. But we didn't do what we advocate in the book in terms of the having the conversations of, hey, okay, like, what if we aren't together when this trip comes up? What's our plan? And you know, this is relatively minor, it's not moving in with someone, it's not getting married. But it really taught me that things can go sideways. And if you don't have the conversations early on, it just gets more awkward on the other side. And so I wish I could say after that experience, I did everything differently, but I didn't because I still hadn't taken my first class. And so there were other life decisions that didn't quite turn out. And I think that's why it was so helpful to take the class to hear about a process. And and to be clear, the framework was not actually a part of the class. There were very similar elements that she shared in the class, but we came up with the framework together when we were writing the book and distilling all of the lessons from the class to share with a broader audience. So what's wrong with the way that we currently make important life decisions? And specifically, we think about making career decisions and we weigh that against love decisions. Why is it a zero sum game? And why is it important that we change that? Well, we have, as I mentioned, this conventional wisdom that teaches us to separate decisions about our career and our finances from decisions about our relationships and love. And when they're separated, they do seem to be more competing and pitting them against each other. And it's similar to um, this image that I love to have in mind when I get into heated conversations with my husband today, where it's like, it can seem like it's kind of you against them, right? They have an opinion, you have a different opinion, and you're the enemy, (laughs) for lack of a better word. And instead, a way to think about it is there's a problem, and you are united against that problem, and your job is to find a solution. And so if you see the relationship decisions and the career decisions, not as pitted against each other, but as parts of your 
identity, hats that are equally important for you to wear, then you can find a way to find solutions that aren't zero-sum game solutions, solutions that kind of grow the pie, if you will, and are able to help you have the life that you want as opposed to feel like you're constantly choosing between suboptimal options. That's so important. The other thing that came to my mind about this is that very often we get unstuck when we lack clarity about what we want and we therefore don't know what questions to ask ourselves and what questions to ask others. And if our partner has more clarity, it may be that it feels like the right thing to do is to go along with their decision, but in the medium to long term, this may not be right for us. And then also thinking through consequences and multiple scenarios can also be difficult. What are your thoughts on this? Yes, the clarity piece is so important. It is the first C in our five C's framework that we speak about in the book, and it can be really difficult to get clarity. So I don't say that to say, oh, okay, so you just get very clear about what's important to you and what you want, and then you go from there. I mean, it is, especially for high achievers, people who have been kind of checking things off of a, a list, if you will, their whole lives, going to prestigious universities and working in top tier places, it can be very hard to separate what you want from what society or what your family or even your friends want. We talk about this concept of mimetic desire, which is a phrase that was coined by René Girard, a French philosopher, that says your wants are very powerfully influenced by the wants of others. And so if you are renting a place to live and you're very happy renting, but all of your friends suddenly start buying their own homes, you might suddenly think, oh, should I be looking for a place to buy? I guess that's what we do right now. So I should put that on my list for something I want. So it really is a process to get that clarity, to untangle your desires from those that you've been socialized to internalize and, and those of your partner. And you're right, it can be easier if someone else has more clarity to just say, sure, whatever you want. But that doesn't always play out well, as you mentioned. And spending the time up front to get that clarity, to get quiet in your head and really tease out what do I really want? And often, you know, people can access that in different ways. Sometimes people like to make a list of their core values and that can be a guide. Sometimes people pay attention to what they get angry about when they read the news or something. And that can actually be a signal that you're hitting a nerve and that taps into one of your core values. Sometimes it's helpful to talk to others and play it forward. Like, oh, if I had those things, you know, how would that feel for me? Other people are much more intuitive and they like to go out in nature and get quiet and listen to the internal voice that may be crowded out when they're in their everyday lives. So it's a different process for everyone, but equally important to figure out that clarity for yourself and then engage with the person or people who are important in that decision. And that does lead us on to the 5C decision-making framework, which you've talked about there, Abby, but I wonder whether you can take us through in a little bit more detail so it's clear for our listeners what this framework is and then how to use it. And then I have actually come up with three scenarios 
that I'd love for you to talk through using the decision-making framework to help listeners see how it's applied in action. But yes, if you could take us through the framework now, and then we'll go into the scenarios. Yeah, well, I love the scenario. So I'll run through it very quickly, and then we can get into how to apply it. So as I mentioned, the first C is clarify what is important to you. The second is communicate with the people or person who are involved in the decision. The third is to generate a broad range of choices. The fourth is to check in with friends, family, and trusted resources. And the fifth C is to examine the consequences in different time horizons. So short-term consequences, medium-term, and long-term consequences. Okay, amazing. All right, let's go on to the first scenario then. And this is taken from your book as well. So choosing a mate and also thinking about whether to get married or stay unmarried. Yeah, so I certainly think that the clarify step is important here because if you know that you want to get married, if you want to have a family someday, you can feel eager to jump into that. And certainly biology is involved. There are all sorts of practical reasons why we're wired to jump ahead. Uh, But really clarifying what's important to you. And I think often we all have lists in our mind of the ideal mate. I certainly did. And when I met the man who became my husband, you know, he didn't check off all the boxes of the list that I had in my head. And we actually started out as just friends. And it took a while for me to let go of, oh, but he didn't check this box or he didn't check that box and realize, wait a minute, I have this amazing connection with someone. He's told me he has feelings for me. So he did communicate and I had to go through the process of letting go. And we actually I haven't shared this story in a podcast, so this is a very inside look. We sort of spent some time apart over a break, a school break, because he had shared with me that he had feelings for me. And I had said, I, you know, I don't know that I'm ready to go there in our relationship. I really love our friendship. And he said, okay, I understand, but I'm going to need some time if that is true, because I did hope that this could turn into something else. And we went our separate ways for that vacation and I missed him so much. (laughs) I just couldn't not have contact. And I remember talking to friends and saying, this is the longest we've ever gone without communicating. This feels strange. Like, I don't know that this is right. And they said, okay, well, that's telling you something. And so I had to pay attention again to let go of the things on my list so that I could realize that I did have these feelings. And even though I had gotten out of a relationship relatively recently and didn't feel necessarily like I wanted to get back into one, I knew this was the person that I needed to be with and it didn't feel right when we weren't connected. And so that communicate step is so important. The step of Generating a broad range of choices is interesting because especially with the rise of dating apps, there can feel like endless potential choices to find a a future partner. But what the research shows, and this is building off of research that Professor Baba Shiv out of Stanford has done on sequential choice versus simultaneous choice, is that actually when you bound your choice, so sequential choice is when you have endless set of options, one after another, which is very similar to what you do when you're constantly swiping on dating apps. And that can feel like the eternal quest for the best. There's always somebody potentially amazing around the corner. But what he talks about is in his culture, he's from India, 
he had simultaneous choice when it came to finding a partner, which was he told his parents he was ready to get married, and they presented him with three options, bounded number that he explored simultaneously. He met with each potential partner, and then he shared with his parents which partner was the right one for him, that his now wife shared that with her parents. Fortunately, they chose each other and that ultimately they then were able to be more satisfied, fulfilled. They've celebrated you know, multiple decades of marriage at this point. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we see this sort of unlimited choice in our dating pool, because actually there is research that you really want to bound your choice, which I think is, is fascinating and very relevant to this topic. So the check-in step comes when you maybe have somebody who you're already dating and you're trying to decide, you know, is this the right person for you? One thing that can be helpful is to ask people who have relationships that you admire. So people who are in your life doesn't need to be your parents necessarily. It could be other relatives, mentors, go to a meal with them and have them evaluate without telling the person, you know, can you see me with this person? How do you think about our relationship? I mean, these are people whose relationships you admire. And so they have something that you are aspiring to, and it can be very helpful to get their input. You don't want to do this to excess. You don't want to constantly grill everyone around you about your future mate. And in fact, if you have people around you whose relationships you don't admire, you don't actually want their advice. So you have to be very judicious with how you use this check-in step. But the consequences step is also crucial here because often we get very focused and humans have a bias towards short-termism. I mean, that's just our nature. And so we can get overly focused on things like a wedding or a honeymoon and not think about, okay, well, this is someone who you're actually building a life with. And we joke, we use Lori Gottlieb's description of you're starting a very boring not-for-profit together, essentially, as a, another you know, <laughs> joking term for a family. And you really need to think about pressure testing your relationship, thinking about how you can not just focus on the short-term kind of giddiness that we all feel at the beginning of a relationship. Sometimes travel can be helpful to, again, put yourself in a, a kind of a pressure situation where things can go wrong and you'll have to bounce back and be resilient and see how your relationship can weather that. Certainly people who went through COVID lockdowns together got a front seat view into that as well. But this is a place where the consequences step can be very helpful to think about how your relationship might be several decades forward from the moment that you're making that choice. This is great advice. There's so much there. And I think what you're demonstrating there is just how much thought needs to go into it. And it's important to sort of step out of yourself and seek that other perspective. And especially from people that you admire or who might in some way represent the life or the relationship that you want. So yes, this is all fantastic. Right. Second scenario then is combining family with career. And this is especially important for women because as we know, women still tend to take up the majority of childcare or they certainly tend to take part-time work if they're raising a, a young family. And there's often that difficult decision-making around to what extent women can actually continue to progress with their career and have a family at the same time? Yes, there's so much pressure and the workplace is still not set up for 
caregivers of any sort, whether you're raising children, whether you're caring for aging relatives, or increasingly many of us uh, doing both. So it is very important to get clarity ahead of time about why you want to work, what is important to you about maintaining a career and have that in your mind because it is not for the faint of heart. It is, I mean, my kids are now almost eight and 10. And so we've been in this for, you know, a decade or so. And I actually, before I took Myra's class, thought that I would potentially work part-time once I had children. That was what my mother did. I had seen many of my friends' parents do that. And so that was an example where I thought I had clarity because our five C's process is not linear, I would say, and it's laid out that way, but often going through the steps causes you to come back and re-clarify. And so I'll give you this example from my personal life. So I, I thought I had clarity that I, I wanted both. I wanted a career and a family, and it was important to me to figure out a way to do that, that I could not have to check my ambition at the door once I became a parent, but also not have other people outsource everything to the hilt in order to keep my foot in the workplace. And so that was my clarity, I thought. Certainly communicating with your partner once you do know what you want to make sure you're on the same page. And this is, you know, hopefully far before you are needing to make a decision about the type of childcare that you want. And ideally, you've had this conversation. If not, it's not too late. I mean, I certainly don't mean to say if you haven't had this conversation, you know, there's no hope. But there's so much when you tether your life to someone that you really need to talk through. And you might be fine having a, a nanny and having someone else in your home caring for your child. Your partner might feel very strongly that they want that child to be raised by family members. And so it's so much better to be on the same page about this early on before those trade-offs come. But the important part is to start having the conversation. And we have exercises in our book. As you mentioned, each chapter is devoted to a big life decision. And so some of these exercises can help prompt the conversations that we think are so critical. The mm. choices step is really crucial here because often when we get into a situation of making a choice, we see the extremes. We get sort of tunnel vision and we think, okay, so either I leave my job and I'm raising children full-time or I'm working full-time and have full-time childcare. And the truth is that there are many places in between those two extremes. And certainly as your child ages, you're constantly making new decisions about what kind of care you need as they go through school, as their needs change. And so making sure that you are looking at all of the different choices, if you're looking for work flexibility, there are many ways to gain that besides leaving the workplace completely. Uh, it could be going down to part-time. It could be becoming an independent consultant or freelancer. It could be a job share. So the check-in point becomes really important in order to see what other people have done and in order to just be more creative about the potential solutions. And so in my own personal example, when I thought I would work part-time before I had children, Myra shared in her class studies that had been done that showed that people who work part-time, not just women, although we know that that happens more frequently for women, people who work part-time, even if they're on a salary basis, make less per hour, have fewer benefits, fewer advancement opportunities, they don't get the plum assignments, and so they don't progress in their careers as quickly. And so I remember looking at this data and thinking, 
oh, like what a terrible deal. And and mm. equity is one of my core values. And so it just felt patently unfair to me that that would be the case. And so I resolved in the class that I was going to find a way to keep working full time once I had children. And so check-in doesn't only have to be with friends or family. It could be with published studies. It could be with any resources that help you get more information. And so once I had that, then I went back and my husband was my boyfriend at the time. And I communicated about what was important to us. And I said, I really want to keep working once I have children. And you know, his mother had stopped working when she had children. And so we said, okay, we don't really have role models in our families for this. We'll have to be creative and intentional and deliberate about finding sources of inspiration in other places. And that was really important for us to articulate and be on the same page about. And it's almost a contract that you have with the other person to say, okay, we know what we both want, and now we're going to find a way to make it work. Again, it's us against the problem, not you know, you against me, you know, if you work this much, I can only work that much. It's need to find a solution together. And, and the consequences here for making big decisions around career and family are tremendous. We've seen how hard it can be for women in particular to get back into the workforce once they've taken many years off. There are certainly things you can do in order to make it easier to get back in, you know, maintaining your network, doing volunteer work, maintaining certifications, if you have those in your industry, all of those are very important. And I think going in with your eyes wide open to whatever solution is right for you, really playing out the consequences on different scenarios can help you do the type of thinking that's important to do to set yourself up for success, regardless of how you define success. And I think just having those conversations early on to your point, Abby, I mean, if your boyfriend at the time, now husband had said, actually, no, I would want my girlfriend, soon to be wife to stay home with the kids and I will be the breadwinner, that would also tell you a very important piece of information, which is that you're potentially not compatible. But the fact that he was open to you saying that and, and supported you in going back to work full time after you had kids meant that, okay, you were with the right partner. 100%. And every year that my co-author taught this class, she would get notes from students saying, I just want to let you know, I've broken up with my partner who I thought I would marry because I realized that we were not on the same page when it came to what we wanted, particularly once kids were involved. And you know, she was teaching at an elite business school, and certainly the people who were there had ambitions that were not to be a full-time caregiver in most cases. And so she did get these notes from students, and she would always say, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm sorry. I know it's difficult to go through a breakup. And so much better that you realize this now than after there are children in the world, and you need to make those decisions in a very different circumstance. Mm. And I think this is also why this is so important for women, because there is more social pressure on women. There are gender norms that women need to conform to. And in a lot of cases, maybe unconscious in both the man and, and woman, if we're talking about heterosexual relationships. And the male partner, for example, may not even consciously realize that he expects his girlfriend, soon to be wife, for example, to stay at home, but that would just happen by default because that's what he was brought up in. 
on the home front. And so just having the conversation so that you kind of surface exactly what people think about and what they inherently might believe is important and should save you a lot of heartbreak and, and I think expense as well. If you do get married and then realize you have to get a divorce. Yes. And actually, we have a whole section in our book all about dividing household chores and childcare. And I remember in the class, this was an exercise because what my professor and now co-author had found is that so many of her students had no idea what was involved in running a household and raising children. They had mm. mothers largely who had made it all happen in the background invisibly. So part of it is raising awareness and making the invisible visible to show all of the mm. moving pieces that need to be part of that stage of life. And you would then have to get together with a partner and bargain. And you, you know, she would give you scenarios about, okay, you make this amount of money and you make that amount of money and now get together and decide how all these things are going to get done. And it was very interesting to see how the financial aspect influenced the power dynamics in a relationship. And that's true in real mm -hmm. life, as we all know. And so it's very helpful to go through that exercise when it's lower stakes, right? When you're just starting out and you can say, okay, here are all the list of tasks. Which one are you going to take the lead on? Which one am I going to take the lead on? And which one are we going to outsource? But by the way, somebody still has to manage the outsourcing. So it doesn't get it off their plate completely. It just you know shifts the onus of who's doing the actual labor. And mm. it's very interesting because there's so many studies of different types of couples. And you mentioned you know heterosexual couples have certain gender defaults for these different tasks. What we see in same-sex couples is that there is a much more equitable division of tasks because they don't default to, oh, well, it's usually the woman who does this or the wife who does that, right? They're actually having to divide up the list based on people's natural proclivity for things, who likes what more, who hates what more. And they have to do that very deliberately because there isn't just a gender default. And I think it's very instructive and certainly an exercise that everyone should go through multiple times. We talk about Eve Rodsky's book, Fair Play, a lot in our book. And she has a very specific method with 100 cards that you go through and divide up. And the goal is not to get to 50-50 at every given moment. It's so that it feels fair and equitable to the two people. And that could mean that for a period of time, you know, when I was writing this book, for example, you know, my husband took on significantly more than his fair share of these tasks um, when it came to household and childcare labor. But we had discussed that and he had offered to do that and we knew it was temporary, but it needs to be a deliberate conversation. Otherwise it can lead to resentment. And as you said, really sliding into gender-based defaults. Yeah. Now we can move on to scenario three. We've touched upon this already, which is deciding whether to break up with somebody or divorce a partner. And this is difficult for a number of reasons, but it usually does also have financial ramifications, especially for women. Yes. And my co-author has been through a divorce and she has very strong perspectives on what's important based on her experience and, and the research out there. I mean, certainly clarifying whether 
this is just a bump in a relationship and an issue that can be resolved, or whether it really is an intractable problem that can't be resolved is important. And often you need a third party who can help. I mean, we are big advocates for therapists, for marriage counselors, for trained professionals of any sort who can be helpful in that, especially if you are just reaching a sticking point with your partner and going around and around in circles. The communicate step is so key because how you communicate in a breakup or divorce really sets the stage for the type of relationship that you are going to have afterwards. And my co-author really advocates for, in the case of divorce, amicable divorces, where especially if there are children involved, you are not trying to say all the things that are in your mind and you just want to get them out. The goal, again, if you clarify, if the goal is to have an amicable relationship on the other side so that your children don't feel they need to choose between one parent or the other, it changes how you would communicate in the relationship. It changes what your approach will be in negotiations. It changes all sorts of things. And so if that is the goal, which we advocate, if there are children involved, it should be. There's certainly exceptions, but in many cases, it could be an important goal to keep in mind. And then that would really affect the tenor of the communication. The choices are very dependent on the specifics, but Obviously, having things in place like prenuptial agreements make a lot of the choices easier and different. Certainly, choices on how to share custody of children are critical. And so the check-in part can be helpful, understanding how other people have done it. We did a survey as part of our research, and we heard from lots of different respondents on creative ways that they've shared custody. So people have prioritized having the children live in the same house, and then they actually, each parent takes a turn living in the house, which gets very expensive because there's three residences that need to be involved. But again, if you can afford it and your priority is to be the least disruptive to your children's lives as possible, that might be a potential solution. So there are many different creative solutions that have been used by different people and checking in can help you get to those. And consequences is a hard one, I think, because of course, in the short term, the consequences can be devastating. But this is a place where it is very helpful to play out the medium and the long-term consequences. And Myra tells the story of how when her first husband asked her for divorce, he said, you're going to thank me. And she said, you know, what kind of statement is that? That's, of course, I'm not going to thank you for <laughs> breaking up our marriage. And, and she'd been married over a decade at that point. And then once she had some space and some time, she did have lunch with him. And she said, you know, I do thank you because I am happier. And she ended up getting remarried and had a very happy second marriage. And so it is one of those things where you're in it, you really only see the short term, but knowing that, you know, others have gone through it and something that is so painful in the moment can actually lead to greater happiness in the long run can be helpful to hear. That is very positive. It's difficult to see that, I think, for people who are in the midst of a breakup or a divorce. But yes, it's important to keep that in mind. As you were talking there, Abby, I was just thinking about at the end of the day, it comes down to having the courage, doesn't it, to speak up, to spend the time to really understand who you are, what's important to you, what your values are, and then to share those with your partner or potential future wife, husband, etc. And not to 
leave these very important conversations to chance and kind of shrug your shoulders or, or leave it to your partner to make a decision for you about something that has a lot of impact. You know, I keep thinking about the word courage and being courageous to have these conversations, just how critical that is. It's so true. Maybe that should be a sixth C because the courage, it's important in all of these steps, frankly, but particularly the communicate part. And I would say the where and the how that you communicate makes just as much of a difference as the what. And so for any of these, Mm. you know, high stakes conversations, what we have found is not just bringing it on your partner as you're brushing your teeth about to go to bed or trying to rush the kids out the door at the beginning of the day for school, really, you know, making it an appointment, treat it like you would any serious conversation at work to say, hey, I'd love to talk to you about something that's been on my mind. Is there a time that we could do that this weekend or, you know, that would be good for you and put it on the calendar and prioritize it. Leave your phone in the other room. Make sure you're really listening because I think often when we have something to say, we just want to get it off our chests and we sort of blurt it out and then we're already thinking of the next thing. But really listening to how your partner responds and, you know, my co-author likes to say the clarify and the communicate step are, are sort of a dance because what they say might actually influence you and help you re-clarify something. And you really have to be open to that. And so if you can go outside your day-to-day, and my husband and I have had good luck having these conversations on a hike. We live in Northern California. One of the reasons we love it here is that we have access to so many beautiful trails to hike on. And so we'll often we have something big to sort out, go out on the weekend, let our kids run up ahead. And when we find ourselves not in the thick of our lives with piles of dishes in the sink and laundry that needs to be folded, we're able to think more expansively and treat each other more generously. And that's that's another really important point in the communicate step is to give the other person grace. This is someone who's very important to you, who you've really decided to spend your life with, but often it's the people who are so close to us that we sometimes take for granted or we assume what they're going to say. And so we don't you know, even give them the, the generosity to say it. And so as much as possible, and I know all these things are very easy to say and hard to do. I certainly experienced that personally, but having the courage to be vulnerable, to let them see inside your deepest desires can really strengthen the relationship on the other side. What if your partner doesn't have self-awareness and what if they struggle with communicating how they really feel? Because in addition to needing to be courageous and wanting to communicate, you do need to have the skills to be able to communicate in a way the other person can understand and receive. What happens then? What if your partner doesn't have the self-awareness and doesn't have the communication skills? What do you do then? Yeah, I mean, it's very tricky, I would say, it, and, and it, it's a practice, right? So it's not to say that these are conversations are going to go perfectly every time. In fact, they, they don't. They often really do not go well, and you have to come back to them. But if you really think that they could benefit from someone else besides you giving them real feedback about their communication styles, you know, that could be a recommendation too, is to say, you know, we've been going around in circles. I have a hard time listening to you. The benefit of going through graduate school with my partner is that we have this shared language. And so we took another class called Interpersonal Dynamics, 
that was a very helpful class. It's affectionately known as touchy-feely to people who went to Stanford, but it talks (laughs) a lot about effective communication and effective ways to deliver feedback. And there are resources out there. And so maybe even suggesting to your partner, I feel like we could have better conversations if we had some shared terminology. Maybe we could read this book together, right? Maybe we could watch this TED Talk. Like there's endless resources out there, but sharing a little bit about why their communication style is hard for you to hear and then suggesting a resource that you could watch or listen to or read together and then using some of those things to say, I'd love to see if we could use some of these techniques in our next conversation and see if they make a difference, right? It's just experimenting, but having the clarity to know okay, it's worth it to invest in this with this person to see, right? And if you have done that for months or years and you're not going anywhere, well, that's actually telling too. So then you have a different set of choices. That's right. That in itself is a qualifier. If your partner doesn't see a problem or if they are resistant to change or to getting help and and maybe going to see a therapist, if that's what's required, that that is telling you something very important too. Yes. I mean, nobody is perfect and we're not superhumans. And so at some point, yes, you have to decide how to move forward in a way that will serve you. Absolutely. Abby, I want to say thank you before I move on to my last question, because you have shared so much and shared your story and Myra's as well. And I think this has really helped to bring your wonderful framework to life. And I hope listeners find it really, really useful. I certainly have. So what is your final message to women about how they can win in money and in love so that they do have the financial security that they need at the end of the day? Because we know there are lots of challenges in that women tend to have less wealth, less net worth for many reasons, which we talk about on the podcast. But I think everything you've shared today should help really create that useful framework for many women. What are your final thoughts to women about this? Well, I love this question, and I would answer it in two ways. One is you need to define what winning means to you. So again, that's that clarify step. What does it mean to win in love and business? What does that look like? Your vision is not going to be the same as someone else's. And so make sure you have done that self-reflection and have that vision for yourself. The second answer is that Our last chapter in the book is all about how to be the change, because we believe it's not enough for everyone to solve their money and love challenges on an individual level. Part of the reason that we face the trade-offs that we do is that our laws, our institutions, our culture, and our society are really not set up to support people pursuing both money and love. You know, even having any personal relationships outside of work and being able to prioritize them is challenging. And that leaves those of us who are in caregiving roles, which in the United States is over half of the population, feeling kind of stuck. So what we really advocate is finding ways to be a change maker, be, you know, a change from the inside. You know, my co-author helped to start the first Center for Gender Research at Stanford, which is now an endowed institute. I helped to start the first employee resource group for working parents at Gap Inc., the global apparel retailer. And those institutions have outlasted us. We saw an opportunity to bring in people who had a shared vision, found allies, made the business case to our respective employers, and they were able to found institutions that 
we've since moved on from those employers, but the institutions still exist. And so I would encourage everyone to think about how they can be a change maker and help to shift the way that our society really does provide options so that the future generations are better able to pursue money and love without being faced with the same trade-offs that we've been faced with. That's wonderful, Abby. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was a delightful conversation. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.